Welcome to Blue State Conversations. This is our place to discuss the political theory from all sides, bridging the political divides that split our society. Hello, everyone. This is Will and Matthew. Say hello. Hey, it's Matthew. So this is the first show of our new podcast, and we're going to start in a very stereotypical way. Tell me, Matthew, what are you drinking? I have a Jefferson's Golden Ale. It is from Yards Brewery in Philadelphia, and uh, they they have a whole lineup of presidential ales that they uh, that they sell. It's very good. We, every time we drive by, we like to pick up a case. So I would be drinking something alcoholic, except it's the middle of the afternoon, and so I'm having a uh, Brasilia Blueberry Bay Antioxidant Infusion drink that I got from Sam's Club today. These are so good. And, and I, my entire credibility has just been undermined in the opening few minutes. All right. <laughs> so <laughs> we wanted to just talk a little bit about why we wanted to do this, why we wanted to make it, what was the driving force behind this. For, for me, a lot of the conversations that I have with people, I have a degree in political science. And when I have conversations with people, those conversations tend to be slogan and insult based. The problem with that is politics is much more comparative. When you have a theory, it sounds really great on paper. You can fit everything in there. You can write a long paper, put in all of your charts and your measurements. But the second you have to actually put it into policy and you have to work with people, that's where you start having to make trade-offs, where you have to start making choices. And a lot of times, people just look right past that and don't see that you're making trade-offs to arrive at your conclusions and just assume your conclusion is this slogan this ridiculousness, this evil, this bad, and then insult you on that. And then they, they give you the, the, you know, it could be all lives matter versus black lives matter. And that's what that's, it just becomes mm-hmm. that versus. Right. When I would say that those two messages, they on their own, they sound like they're 100% opposite, but they don't necessarily have to be. It's in how you view the situation. Exactly. And, and people can agree on 90%. And then that last 10% can be what you disagree on. But all of a sudden it's, no, we disagree on the whole 100% and mm-hmm. you're evil. And that doesn't lead to anybody actually doing anything. <laughs> the other hot button would be like if you had like pro-life versus, a, uh, what is it? Pro, uh, pro-choice. Pro-life right. and pro-choice all the time. Versus you have plenty of people who say that they're pro-life except when certain stipulations are met. That doesn't necessarily mean that they want all of your choices to be taken away from you. They just want you to reserve abortion for those really difficult situations, you know, versus being used as a form of birth control. Right. You you will see people who say that they're okay with abortion up till that first month, right at the beginning, but they're not comfortable mm-hmm. with the up till birth position. Right. And you'll see there's pro-lifers who are completely okay with um, in- rape and incest situations. Then there's others that are, nope, it, the mother has to basically be do- bleeding out on the table for me to consider that. <laughs> And that's right. just there. That's four different separate positions. But the way it would be presented is there's two parties and that's it. Right. Which is funny because even with the way that you presented those four different positions, like that some of those positions make my heart right rise because I'm like, ah, that's way too much. It almost makes me angry. But at the same point, I knew that it wasn't a position that should make me feel that way. It's just somebody presenting something that I am against or not necessarily for in all cases, which really that's how we are. That's how we bring new information to our brains. We have to process it and determine what to do with that. And so 
I would say that we, we wanted to put this show together so that we could help people process the different sides to policies and how they impact our lives and what we can do for what is important to us to make you know new actions or how to interact with other people that have different viewpoints than ourselves. Exactly. So I, what, I, what I'd like to pose for everybody here is just sort of an opening problem. So the, the problem here is you're, you're a young new homeowner. There's, for a lot of us, this will be something that we go through, right? Okay. I have to say this is a really interesting thing because I just purchased a house a few months ago. So this is really close to my heart. So continue. Yeah. So you're a young new homeowner. You can afford to live in two towns on the range of the job that you love and your career choice. So you've got all the pieces that you've been looking for. You just got to figure out where am I going to live? So town A, it's got a reputation for drugs. We've all been through those sections. You're driving by and everybody goes, don't go to that corner store after 10 on a Sunday night. We all know those sections, right? With many users congregating in the downtown area. Town B is fairly upscale, but has one of the highest murder rates in the whole county. So town A, you have drugs. The downtown is infested with it. Town B, murder rate, but it is upscale. Okay. So I would like to to throw the idea that I actually do live near a city that I would consider has a consistent drug problem. But then we know for a fact that the further away you get from the city, the less you know drugs there are, but the more alternative other crimes. So this feels pretty specific to my current living situation. Yeah, when I bought my house too, same sort of thing. Where do you live in that town? Had different. Mm-hmm. We actually had assaults. That that brings us to sort of the question of the show. You know, which do you choose? Are you pro drugs? Are you anti murder? Exactly, how much crime are you okay with? Mm-hmm. Is that too many murders or enough murders for you to live in? Right, and that's such a difficult question because. The real way that people determine where they're going to live is by looking at the houses that are near the house that they're looking at. They got a notification that such and such house was within their price range and they went to go check it out. And then if you're anything like my wife and you scoped out the other houses and you saw that closer to downtown with, you know, the drugs, like, well, this house is super nice, but those other houses over there, they kind of look a little bit sketchy. And I had to, it was funny because I actually, I discussed with her, like, there aren't a ton of violent crimes here. You know, I can look them up on a crime map. And the thing that we had to, to face with that is the implicit assumptions you make about the community that you're looking at versus when we, we traveled further away down to what would be essentially town B, where there's the higher murder rate with, you know, but it's more upscale and then saying, well, it's a nice neighborhood. It has you know, a good school district. Maybe we'll need it someday. And yet there's other crimes. They're there. But you don't usually you don't necessarily see them. Murder right. is one of those things where it happens. It shows up in the newspaper. Yeah, and someone is dead. You know, there's a lot of things that you can ignore because they're not so much impactful on a page, or they're not so much. They tend to become statistics more. Mm-hmm. Robberies are easy to ignore because people get robbed, right? And yeah. again, that brings you right back to that question: How, how many robberies should be in your town? Mm-hmm. So you know. Just going back to that murder example, you have Maine. It's one of the safest states in the United States, right? You've got a crime rate of 0.018 per 1,000 residents, right? Mm-hmm. Most of us would be like, that's insanely low. So if, if you impolled everybody, right, we'd all be like, great, sounds awesome. Let's. But you just agreed to 10 people dying. You just said, isn't that great? There's 10 people killed. 
Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, we've all seen that meme where they were like, how much is 10 too many? And they say dollars. No murders. Yes. But that's kind of the whole point here. Are you saying that every year it's 10 people per 1K residence? If you're saying average life expectancy is 80, that, that means in your 80 years that you spend there, you're saying 800,000 people dying is okay with you. So what? that's a question for you in terms of an ethics question. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I would say as far as ethically is concerned, there are a lot of people that would start by saying, first of all, I'm not okay with that. But when it comes right down to it, it wasn't my family, you know, which is really hard. Or you have other people that would say, that's not okay, but it's up to the police. And then you have still more others that would go along with the idea that if we could just save all of them, that would be what it takes. You have to save every single person or it's not good enough. But we all still live in reality. That's not reality. And I think that the people who actually say, and I might get on some people's nerves for saying this, if they believe that everyone has to be saved for it to be okay, I would say that's extraordinarily optimistic, but it's also incorrect. But they're willing to live with that feeling, that knowledge that They're incorrect, but it should be everyone because the moral idea of standing on everyone should be okay is worth it, even if that's not where reality is. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. It does make sense to me. And I think someone might just come back with, why are we talking about numbers and things like that? You know, 800,000 people die every day. Mm -hmm. But the question is, at what point do you start to put in policies for that? Hmm. So are we saying that if they've got a crime rate of 0.018, every single other state should just do what Maine's doing? Because every state like Maine. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, New York has a completely different makeup than Maine does. Mm-hmm. Right. And then Florida is different. And South Dakota is, you know, are you more rural? But, you know, Maine is, has a large population concentration at the south. And then it's pretty rural besides that. So basically any state that mirrors that should do what they're doing. Right. Potentially. But if that was the case... Why aren't they? Are they all criminals or are they just trying to do what they're doing in their space? So that's where you start seeing that policy application part. Right. And I would say that where you're hitting at right there is that every state is different. Every state is made up of different types of people. You know, people on the West Coast are not like people on the East Coast. Same for people in Texas versus people in the Midwest. Right. And and then you go down to a local level, just your town's history and what you've been doing to the compared to the town next to you, you know, if you were a former, you know, fishing town, and then you you started to see things move away from that because it's more commercialized, so the smaller fishermen's gone. Mm-hmm. Detroit is a great example of an old town that had a lot of production and machinery, and then they started inventing AC. They started doing more and more ability with transportation, so they can move away from that Great Lakes area, mm-hmm. and that the town starts to fall into disrepair. So, mm-hmm. right, that's different than my suburbs, which has developed as a result of that moving infrastructure, right? So how my town is working versus your town means that we might have to do different things. But again, are either of us pro-drugs or pro-murder? Neither (laughs) of us in that case, right? Yeah. I can't imagine anyone coming and being like, yeah, I'm so great. I'm so happy about there being drugs and crime in my area. Right. You know, and that's why it's kind of silly when people say these things. I actually saw somebody type out that Republicans want to murder us. And I was just going... Really, there's 60 million people that just want 63 other million people to die. Maybe they just think they're right. (laughs) It doesn't mean they want to kill you. (laughs) You can just see where it begins to break down because we're so focused on things like that. Um, Mm -hmm. So you move into certain areas 
And then you get, those areas gain a history, they gain a reputation. Certain houses are in areas, and that becomes an area that is, has a reputation. Mm-hmm. So I guess the question is, what, what do we do about that? How should we respond to a type of situation like this where we could live into a, a place that has a limited level of crime, but we're choosing to live through that? How, does, how do we change how we apply ourselves to that type of an issue? Right. Well, the biggest thing is this. We oftentimes as humans assume zero is the goal. In coronavirus, the goal is zero coronavirus, right? Mm. The goal is zero murder. The goal is zero rape, zero robberies, zero arsons, zero cancer, right? We put that as the goal. Mm. That has issues in the fact that your response to that means, right, because we could end murder. We just need to put policemen in every couple houses, right? We'll put surveillance cameras on your front doors. So we'll record everybody coming in and out. We'll have a policeman for every block. They'll be armed to the teeth. We'll have dogs, you know, everywhere. And we'll make sure every single American is armed and trained with a gun. Well, if we're doing that, I want a moat. Right, exactly. I know. That I will want help me. I want, yeah. I want murder holes. I'm thinking right? maybe if I could just get a lot of pillows on either side of me, that might work. Yeah. Exactly. Um, that's, that's, yeah. So the, you, you see, these policies are obviously not workable. You can't have a police force of in New York where there's what, 22 million to have that. What would your police force need to be? A 3 million man police well, force? Here, give you another example. So I've been talking with a few different teachers that I'm you know, friends with. And uh, one of them was giving me the idea that they really just need a lot more funding if they're going to be able to take children back into schools with limited number of kids per teacher. And I posed the argument to her that that would be extremely difficult because we're talking about trying to have kids in groups of eight. And if you have a class of 24 students, which is really a small class, if you think about it's it, as far as small. like you could have classes, you know, 30, maybe more. So right there, we're talking about increasing the funding by 300% right off of that mark. And that's just right. not going to happen. You know, like, what are we talking about? Increasing property taxes 300%. And the response that we had a really good interaction on it, where we essentially came to agreement that it would work out better if we were able to eliminate some of the things that bureaucracy pays for that is unnecessary and moved funding towards schools rather than just tripling how much property taxes cost. Right. But of course, the people who are being helped by those other ones that we cut, you could make uh, a similar thing to fund the police arguments going on where you can move funding around, but the people who are benefiting from that funding are going to be a little upset that that funding's gone, right? Right. And the difficulty with that is where you end up, like you said, those people get upset. The question then becomes, are they loud enough to keep that funding? Right. And that's been a common thing, right? Many of the arguments has been, well, these groups are historically marginalized. They're not heard. So they need more funding. Okay. You know, so we transfer funding over there. So then you just keep mm -hmm. funding and funding. And then at a certain point, is funding the whole answer? Is there a personal component? Is there a certain thing? I mean, one of the more visceral things that tends to occupy our attention is rape cases, right? Mm -hmm. Those things really, really grab your attention yeah. because it is so horrible. It really is. It's gross. But, you know, so we had the Me Too movement. We've had the Time's Up movement. We've had movements that have exposed really horrible people, right? But at what point should they say the rape culture is over? 
Because the answer is not zero rapes, right? Because that's just not possible in any short-term reasonable goal, right? Mm -hmm. Like feminism. Does feminism end when there are no women making money less than a man? Is that a possible goal? You know what I mean? Is, 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 are these goals possible? It's not zero. So, but at what point do you say, actually, it's equitable, mm-hmm. right? Or it's enough? And that's honestly a very hard question because if you ask me too, they're going to tell you no rapes. We want no rapes. Yeah, I would say it's difficult because theoretically, if you're using zero rapes as the baseline, you're essentially saying that the movement will never be over. Right. And then again, what policies are you putting in place? Are you, you know, every male gets a vasectomy? Is that the new <laughs> until they're married, right? You see those memes on- online, but you've just taken away somebody's freedom, right? Right. Well, there are cases where somebody would say that person should definitely have been forced into a vasectomy and rape cases are one of them. You know, I mean, I'm honestly of the mindset that it's so terrible that, yeah, it might be a natural consequence if it were to be passed. And I don't think many people would fight it just because it's so horrifying, the crime. Um, But at the same point, we can't just tell somebody that they can't have you know access to their own it's gonna sound really terrible to their own genitals for lack of a better way of saying that (laughs) because they could use it in a terrible way i would say the closest argument that comes to mind is i think they're called red light laws or something like that where in some states it is okay for somebody to say that that person owns a firearm and i'm concerned for their safety and it should be removed from their household you know, except that's a little bit different. It could be taken and returned versus right. a vasectomy. Yeah, it could be reversed, but I a court ordered one, not likely. Or if you're doing a blanket one of just all males, right? There you go. We've solved it. We've solved babies from rape, right? We just bam, boom. But again, you've gone too far in that correction. If you start saying, well, every accusation of rape is going to be believed, right? You see that movement. Well, the trouble with that is the breakdown in statistics are usually this. It gets presented this way, that there are 30% of uh, rapists are convicted, 2% of women are found to be lying, and then we never hear about the middle part. That the 2% part is that they prove to be lying. Oh, wow. And that 30% is that they prove, you know what I mean? Because the police aren't in like true or non-true, they're in prosecutable and non-prosecutable. Mm-hmm. That's what the police handle, right? So if someone says, oh, he raped me, it's he said, she said then they can't prove she lied. So the guy can say she lied and she can say, no, he's lying. And now everybody's lying and nobody knows, right? So let's completely end rape. Like, let's have this brilliant idea what we'll do. We will have separate rooms at work for men and women. They will enter through separate doors and they will never see each other. We have ended workplace harassment. They have segregated colleges and they still have rapes on campus. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So again, I just came up with segregation based on sex and nobody would agree to that. Well, actually, there are companies where there's disproportionately more men than women, in which case they would say that they don't have enough diversity in said company. That's true. But again, how far do you go in protecting workplace harassment? Can women, men and women not talk to each other face to face? Would you need to hire an entire group of people to sit in and watch every meeting between men and females? Yeah. Are you going to have cameras over everybody to track everybody's movements? You know what I mean? You're now becoming invasive. And people are going to say, well, I can't work in that environment because I feel tracked and watched and I'm uncomfortable, so I can't work. But then you're saying, but you were doing this to save people. Aren't you for saving people? 
And again, we're right back to that sloganeering where, of course, I'm for saving people, but at the same time, what are you going to do? <laughs> well, my response to that would be, I would find another job. However, <laughs> the actual response that I would say is, there's so much of this that's left to your own personal devices and personal choice. And I think it's supposed to be that way, but it's supposed to be that way in a sense that so that you would protect each other, not because you're all forced to, but because you all want to be, everyone wants to be above reproach. You know, I make an effort to make sure that I'm meeting in a place where there's plenty of glass and, and where I work, there's glass in every single conference room. There's never going to be a situation where if I'm alone with somebody of the opposite sex, that there isn't a way that people could just be walking by all the time, which is just fine. But then there are plenty of buildings where there's lots of closed off places like a stairwell or a copy room. And you're in there, somebody else walks in, and then the door closes and everybody goes, whoa, what's going on there? Something you know bad? Or somebody could say something about that moment in there. My wife is a teacher and she told me about this little girl that is a little bit on the older side of being you know small. And this girl was walking up to teachers and she would give them a hug. And then she would say, I'm going to tell my mommy what you did. <laughs> Jeez. And my wife told me that she saw this happen. And immediately, anytime this girl comes up to her, she just pushes her away, like very gently and very like, no, I'm not going to give you a hug today, you know, and in a very gentle teacherly way. And the girl just accepts it and smiles and walks on. And that type of thing, like as a male, I think to myself, wow, like if I was a teacher, I would be ruined because I would want to show regular teacher love to kids, if they want to hug me and they're below a certain age, that's perfectly acceptable. But if somebody's going to walk up and play out that type of a scenario, that child is putting me at risk and I haven't even done anything. And so I would say it's there's a risk in your job at any type of workplace, no matter what's being watched. And if there's more video being taken, anything can be construed as something. And so we run this double standard where we want there to be some type of camera up to make sure that nothing's going wrong. Right. But we also don't want it to be used against us if it looks like something that it's not. Because if there was camera footage of this girl giving some teacher a hug and then she walks over and she tells somebody, I gave this person a hug and they touched me. Well, you've just created a whole situation, you know? Right. And the reality is like, well, how did they touch you? Oh, where they touched me here, here and here. Is that a hug or is that something inappropriate? Right. And now we're doing the NFL replay where the ref says one thing and half the teams are screaming. I, I needed, his knee went mm -hmm. down. You know, now you're playing this game where you're doing these. Uh, and, right. And that's the issue. At what point do you do that? But at the same time, are we going to simply trust all adults? Mm -hmm. Because that policy led to a lot of abuse, which is why they've implemented a lot of these new rules. Right. So this is where you can see that balancing act coming into play in just a everyday sort of scenario in terms of your job, in terms of what teachers go through, in terms of stuff like that. But if we can take that to like a major policy level, you know, we're taking it away from the interpersonal reactions that go into court. We're going to take this into like a policy that everybody kind of is on board with. And that's your prison reform, mm. right? Everybody loves prison reform. You feel like you're fixing justice itself, right? It's like you're captain justice, justice, like you're a super justice. And what exactly do you mean when you're talking about things like that? Because is anyone against criminal justice? Is anyone like, well, I enjoy 
people being locked up for no reason. I, I, I don't know. I'm sure there's a few people, but... Well, people want to feel good about reforming people. Right. That's why prison reform is so important. It's why there's people that want to remove drug-related instances of putting people into prison. Because if you believe that that's not a good reason to be put in prison, then we want them out of prison. You know, change the law, that type of thing. And when you brought up prison reform, the first thing I thought of was that we have private prisons in this country and there are people who make a lot of money putting people into prison. You know, that's a a well-known thing. Or I think it was known as kickbacks. Yeah, you get a lot of incentives to do it because the idea was to basically have contracts out rather than the government run. And the idea was sort of a cost saving because the government likes to do that. So I I will say that it almost makes sense. So there are a lot of instances where when a private business takes over something the government was doing, they save money because they find a more effective way to do things. That's a well-known thing. The problem becomes when you start incentivizing that the state has to send in like a minimum number of people to that prison in order to be profitable. And that's where you get into trouble. Because you need profit. But the best things governments are at doing is not being profitable. Mm-hmm. So they, because again, a, a prison is expensive. It's, it is expensive, but it's also a tragedy of the commons sort of thing. If I'm running a private prison and I just need to beat your quote to the government to come to my prison, then I can just go, hey, look, they use beef, but we use mystery meat. It's, you know, there's what? They're fed. Somewhat concerning. They're fed and you've, you save the million, right? And then all in it. You, now you have a new problem. And then you also have the issue of your private person. Does this have an effect on your Freedom of Information Act requests? Because it's a private business now. It's not a government business. So again, are you saving money? Are you doing these things? Is it better because, you know, as a private business, they can be sued in a different way? Are you saying that they can be sued better? Mm-hmm. Maybe you're making those arguments. But at the same time, you're making trade-offs with a federal or state prison that's going on. And A lot of times what you hear from people is, well, you know, we need to get rid of private prisons and the next thing we need to do is we need to let out nonviolent offenders or they say we have the highest prison rate per capita and that's why we we need prison reform. This kind of stems back off how much crime are you okay with because people give the number, right? It's about two and a half million. It fluctuates, obviously. Mm. And those people who are in jail, they just say, well, that's the number. It's too high. It needs to be lower. Okay, so which crimes are going out? So usually the first one that comes right off the bat is, well, get rid of the drug offenses. Right. Right. So even though it's only about 15%-ish that are in there for possession and the rest are for usually dealing, and you can argue over that which way you want to go. But let's say we removed every single person who's in there for drug offenses. That's not only marijuana. That's cocaine. That's fentanyl. That's all of the drugs. If we removed every single one of those from all the prisoners... That gives us an incarceration rate of 556 per 100,000. Wow. Which only puts us at second worldwide and still gives us a total of about 1,841,000 prisoners, which is more than China. Although I'm sure China has a few hidden ones that they haven't told us about. But the official counts, are you telling me that the United States, if we removed all the drug offenses, so which ones are you removing next? Arson? Assault? Rape? We know which well, Matthew, like... I have to go all the way back here because as soon as you start listing drugs, like when I hear the word fentanyl, like my head goes straight off to somebody that I worked with who was saying that he knew someone who died from a fentanyl overdose and how he didn't even know that he was taking it. You know, it takes such a small amount of fentanyl to kill you that it's actually you have to be really careful with something like that that's so deadly because 
it's essentially nonviolent murder. You know, like you have to be very careful about treating all drug cases the same because something like marijuana is very like, oh, I feel good. And there are studies out there that say that it's really good for medical use as well as it's you know difficult to overdose on and cause death. So going even all the way back there, you'd have to like cut it and dice it as far as what is quote acceptable and what is not acceptable. So it would be things that impact you and mostly only you that don't cause death versus things where you could murder someone very easily. And then moving your way up, you said that even if we removed all of those, that we would be the second worldwide. Do you know what would be the first at that point? At that point, it would drop us below Russia. Russia. Right. Russia has the number one lowest crimes. They're at about 615 per 100,000. We're sitting at around 737. Depending on the website you go to, the mm-hmm. exact number might fluctuate, but it's usually, it's usually like United States, and then you keep dropping down after that. Wow. That's really right. surprising. Yeah. So the one that I got from is World Population Review, and that lists United States, Russia, Ukraine, South Africa, Poland. One, two, three, four, five. So we'd be above China. <laughs> well, everyone's um, above China, unless you right, believe you their, know, their stats. Right. So again, are we really number one? I mean, they have a million Uyghurs in prison camps. Are those being counted in the Chinese numbers? <laughs> I don't yeah, think I they f- are. I think we'd have to remove communist countries from the list before we, <laughs> before we start coming up with statistics. <laughs> That's the thing where, which one are you going to remove next, right? Just on the state level, there's about a million three hundred thousand in the state prisons. 713,000 of those are for assault, robbery, rape, sexual assault, manslaughter, and murder, and with a few other violent crimes thrown in. That's still 713,000 people, and that's just on the state level. Was that in like a list from like highest to lowest? Like, What were those first three? So highest to lowest would be robbery, then rape and sexual assault, then assault, manslaughter, and then murder. So I'm sorry, no, man, so murder, manslaughter. Um, are put together. I'm sorry about that. That makes sense. So murder than manslaughter. But yeah, you see that in that case, mm-hmm. you're all the way up to that. So then you've got property crimes, which is 227,000. This is just on your state level. That's car theft, regular theft, burglary, fraud. And if you're wondering why robbery might be in the violent crime, that usually means that there is another crime that's committed that's violent along with it. Okay. Some form of assault. There's usually a form of assault. So if somebody robs you at gunpoint, they haven't murdered you, but they robbed you. And so you're convicted on you know the robbery with a deadly weapon. Um, so this is concerning stuff. Right. And so here's the state level breakdown on drugs and drug possession. So drug possession is 45,000 on the state level. And then other drugs is 145,000. Yeah. So again, you're seeing here, which one are you going to start removing here? Now, maybe your argument is, we overcharge people. We just convict people too much, and that's how the system's broken. Maybe that's your mm-hmm. argument there. But you can see where somebody might look at this. I mean, I actually I have an ANCOM friend who honestly just says, yes, everything but violent in here should be released. And it's like, okay. <laughs> but again, that's a viewpoint that they have, and they back it up with concurrent other policies that fit into. So rather mm-hmm. than me sitting there and just going <laughs> – you like people's houses being set on fire? No, he's not pro people's houses being set on fire. He's pro having landmines in front of his house because he believes it's private property. Right? That's an ANCAP belief that, look, you came on my property. I have the ability to defend my property. And once you stepped on there and you weren't supposed to be there, I can defend it. So just to keep me understand, you said ANCAP. Can you explain? Sure. Uh, so ANCAP stands for anarcho-capitalist. Uh, basically. Oh, okay. 
Yeah. It's basically a very, very angry libertarian. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Basically, the idea is that the rights of the individual and that the only role that any government may have is to just back up an individual. The popular things about this is they tend to be very, the free market will handle. Right. Individuals will handle. Yeah. And of course, there's pros and cons with that for every right. type of situation. You know, there are lots of times where the market does handle it. However, there are plenty of times where corporate greed becomes an issue. And that's where it becomes dicey as far right. as what are you willing to be okay with. A perfectly good example of that would be Amazon, both as a company on how large it is, or not everyone would know this, but the majority of their sellers are mostly individual small businesses who are selling on that platform. And so when you ran into the issue where sanitization wipes or Clorox or any type of cleaning piece of equipment was being sold on Amazon for exorbitant prices, that was the private market setting the price due to extreme demand. But at the same point, there was a call to action to lower those prices because for the good of the people, it needed to be lower. Now, the issue there is that the greed slash the market isn't actually correcting down, it's correcting up, which is causing it to be difficult for people who don't have as much money to access what they would need to keep themselves safe. And this would be a critique of that way of living. And this is where you can see that these all start playing in together. Mm -hmm. But again, for him, he's saying that, but I'm not for me, I'm much more closer to conservative. I'm not really comfortable with burglary and fraud and car theft not having something being enforced. Are you telling me that people committing crimes against you inhibits your freedom? Something like that. I mean, uh, 25,000 on the state level for driving under the influence. Wow. You know, that's the, on the state level. For those, what do you do mm-hmm. with that? Is that something where like, look, he drove under the influence. It's my job as a citizen to go stop him. You know, I, I have right. a police force for a reason. But then you get into, so can the police simply stop him by ramming him over? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It's, it's a DUI, so I can, I can now kill him. Right. That the policies. That's too far. Right. You start going too far. So what exactly does this all mean? So we've talked about a lot of things here. Mm-hmm. And I I actually want to pull something in here. So like a lot of these topics are so huge. And I think there's a tendency for a lot of Americans, a lot of people in general, where their response to it is kind of to put their fingers in their ears and close their eyes and shut it out. And I think another reason why we wanted to create this podcast is to discuss them and allow for people who might have had that impression that they should close it out to recognize that this does affect them, even though they might live further away from these issues. You know, like I live in a decent neighborhood where I don't notice when there are crimes being committed because it is outside of my home. It's outside of my life. But when you see things on TV and you know that there are protests going on, there are violent protests. I was reading like earlier this week that there have been 60 consecutive days of more or less violent protests between protesters and the police in Portland. And I read that and I go, oh my goodness, I thought that was just happening once or twice every few days and that it was over a few months ago. And, you know, it's so big that you have to actually take the time to think about it, talk about it. And once you recognize that we exist in this world where 
crime exists and is on your front doorstep and it's up to you to come to a conclusion about what you can do about it, you know, that's a much better step than recognizing that you could just let it all stay as far away from you as possible. I'm really glad that we're having this conversation. We might encourage other people to start discussing it with those that they love because these are actually really important topics that we don't take the time as Americans to really dig into. Right. And, and I think that brings you to just the hardest part of politics. And that part is that it requires the removal of emotion while dealing with emotional topics. Mm-hmm. Because we've talked about murder. And we've talked about rape. We've talked about people in prison. Those things are cruel. Heart-wrenching. They're heart-wrenching. They're cruel. And, and it's cruel because we just sat here and we said, how many people should be raped? Yeah, it's awful. It's such a terrible right. question. It's an absolutely terrible thing to happen. So again, it needs to be discussed. Mm-hmm. You have people like Harvey Weinstein. You have people like allegedly Jeffrey Epstein. Uh, is it still allegedly? I don't know. <laughs> I don't I mean, know court documents came. Um, probably didn't kill himself anyway. Had to throw that in there. Well, I guess he can't sue me anymore. Um, <laughs> so, uh, and I have, I have information which will lead to just kidding. So <laughs> I, you have those things. And I guess you, know, you can include the jokes too. I mean, we're talking about, you know, look at, you know, you're thinking about all these, you know, the girls that he heard about and you're talking about these things. Let me just throw in there that us joking about it is not not taking it seriously. It's us taking it seriously and kind of letting it out and laughing because it's just it's so heavy that you have to be able to just take a breath because it is so heavy, you know? Right. And I find this happens a lot. The discussion starts on what to do mm-hmm. with a problem or a topic that has come up. Right. People begin to talk about how they feel about it, how they process approaching it, and they begin to say, here's what I think. And someone finds the thing in there that is hurtful or wrong or ignorant or not there. And instead of coming back with the counterproposal, instead of coming back with the this is why, they start with the emotional reaction to that thing, and mm-hmm. that becomes the discussion. And we see that all the time in politics today. It's the soundbite that you hear on TV over and over and over and over again. It shows up on your Facebook, on your Twitter, you know, on your Instagram. And then that's suddenly all we're talking about. It's the emotional response. Congressional hearings don't exist anymore. It's literally just people getting their 30-second clips to send out to all their supporters and onto Snapchat and Instagram that they mm-hmm. can post to their page and have 5 million people go, oh my gosh, Slay Queen, they did it. Right? That's all it is. There's no interviewing of the witness anymore. Mm-hmm. They call them in, they scream at them, and then like they go, hey, thanks for coming, man. Thanks. Yeah, I'll send you a beer or something. Look, I got to win an election. No, they send them money. Right, <laughs> send them money. <laughs> they say, thank you for being our professional witness. I mean, you talk about the first coronavirus package, passed the House, and no, I didn't pass the House, it started in the Senate, and the Senate Democrats and Republicans agreed on it, and went to the House, and the House just said no. Destroyed it. After saying yes. Yeah. And where's the consensus on that? Right. So everyone just immediately accused the other side of wanting to murder people. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's happening again right now. So like we're filming this on August 2nd and I just got the news that it's $600 a week for unemployment. And it's a bonus stimulus on top of whatever 50% of their wages were previously that that just expired on July 31st. And they were saying that it's going to take at least four to six weeks 
in order to put anything in place, even if they were to put it back in place or if they were going to put in a $200 instead of $600. And whether you agree or disagree on how much money is enough money, it's still a situation where they still chose to say no and it's going back for another month to a month and a half. And what they did in that one as well, both sides said that the bill could only pass in totality. They would not pass sections that were both agreed on and then pass the rest. Yeah, I got really angry when I heard that. I really had to like step away because it's just so rough because I know people who are really hurting and I disagree on the amount of money, but I don't disagree that they need something. And the controversial opinion that I have on that is it's not because those politicians hate you or hate each other. It's because they know the most effective way to get votes and to get a response and to get a constituency and win elections Mm -hmm. is to make you believe the other side's trying to kill them. Right. So if I'm a Republican, I can get up there and talk about, we had this package. Look how great it was. We did this, 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 and this. We have this, this. We're going to put and people they back to work. Said We're going to no. people. And they said, no, they want to kill you. And then the Democrats mm-hmm. get up and go, they didn't want to give you 600 a week. They gave money to the Pentagon. They did this. And we're going to do, and we want you so to understand they're trying to kill you. Right. And yeah, so I want to take that because we talked about earlier how it's different across the entire country. $600 bonus stimulus might be incredible amount of money to somebody that lives in Texas, but it's nothing to someone who lives in California. So I live in Massachusetts and I do hiring as part of my day job. I've had four people tell me, thanks, I'll take unemployment. Ouch. Right. And these are guys who, good quality guys. But it mm-hmm. just it was more profitable for them. I know a guy who was financing his new apartment off it. Wow. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I know at least two people who said that they openly admitted in front of several people that they were making more money on unemployment than they were working. Um, I know one of them would qualify as both underemployed and underpaid, but the other one would have just qualified as underemployed and not underpaid. So it's a difficult thing because $600, it's, it's too flat. If you wanted to actually make an impact that made sense, some people would call it unfair, but you'd have to do it on a state-by-state basis. Right. So now you're back to that sort of thing where we're talking, everyone's saying it should be 600 yes, no. Mm-hmm. That totality thing. But if someone comes up with something else that's like, well, no, 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 no. We're, we're discussing this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Zeros on propositions are not possible when you're dealing with humans. Right. Right. When we discuss things with people, mm-hmm. when I saw David Horowitz, he had a quote that really impacted the way I think about things. And he said, a lot of people approach it that they are on the side of God and his angels. Oof. And the other side is the side of the demons. And when you think of people like that, then there's no other choice but to destroy them. I mean, right. they're demons. You mm-hmm. destroy demons. That's what you do. But if you view it as more that both of us are trying to be on the side of angels and we have different – because and then again, you have to still remember there are people who are on the side of demons. There are people who have ideas that are just – they want to hurt people, right? So I complained about those four guys who said, look, I'll take unemployment. Right. But at the same time, maybe that guy had some debts and so he's going, look, I got to make the most money I can right now because I got to pay off my credit cards. I I, You know, maybe they're having a baby and they're going, look, I just – I need more money, right? right? There are people who need that 600. Yeah. Or the 1,200. Right. But at the same time, our GDP went down 30, 40% in in Q2. And that's going to hurt people. Yeah. There was another person I talked to who was uh, very much where the conversation broke down 
when like I had no words for them when they said in response to me, we were discussing the $600 and like what could be done. And her response to me was, well, the politicians just, they just don't want to give us that $600 because they just don't want to. And I just, I was dumbfounded because I essentially responded and was like, I don't have a good response for you because, and in my head, I'm thinking, because I can't respond analytically to your emotional response right now without making you feel attacked. Because you're going after their personal emotions. Right. And it was so difficult because I found a way to respond where they didn't feel attacked. But at the same point, it's hard to make a point about how things are in reality without causing there to be a judgment call about who I am as a person, even though because of the mutual friends thread we were typing on, we both came to it with good faith. Right. And so what time is it to push back on somebody on their ideas or on that person? Or when is it time to just sort of understand that they have a different view on it? And I think the biggest key that we have to remember, and that goes back to answering that original question of the show, which is how much murder are you okay with? And the key is that limiting principles, because we alluded to it several times, right? You know, how much police presence do you need to stop murder? How far should Me Too go to stop rapes? How far? You have to have a principle that sort of limits it, right? You have to have a sort of thing where you go, look, here's where I'm drawing the line, and that's my line, and I'm supporting it with these logical viewpoints, and then... Then you, when you know when that line is crossed, because you can enunciate okay. that principle. So that works really well in a case like feminism. So my wife has said to me numerous times, she says, I'm as much of a feminist as I think every woman should be. That's what she says. And what she means by that is she can work any job she wants to. She can get any education she wants to. She can vote and she can open a bank account. That is basically everything you need to be able to do as a woman to realistically be as benefited by what men have as you can by having right. access. It's a structural access to this structure of the country, which is typically defined as first wave feminism. And then you have what second wave where they started doing social. And then now we're third wave and some of you say even fourth wave. I was going to say but, fourth wave. Yeah. yeah. Again, that's a great example where is she not a feminist because she doesn't support today's feminist things? Reagan had a famous that as long as you're 80% agree with conservatives, you're a conservative, stop being a purist, right? <laughs> because conservatives would sit there and it's kind of a running joke amongst left-wingers that conservatives like to disagree with each other over the same thing. Mm -hmm. You know, a conservative will sit there and go, there should be a free market. Another conservative will go, that's wrong. There should be a free market. Mm -hmm. And <laughs> they argue over, it's like, you guys know you're agreeing over like... Sure. Part of it. Right. And so like with feminism, it becomes the same thing where my wife, like she'll talk to other women who are say they're feminists. But when she started saying like, I want to have a baby and I'm considering not going back to work as a music teacher. Suddenly, we literally had a friend who, a very dear friend to us, who told her that if she chose not to go back to work, that she's not living up to her full potential. And this is a dear friend to us. And, right. you know, and where that response is, we actually agree on so many things. But then the issue with feminism is the idea is not to use feminism as a bat of which to hit other women, you know? Right. And, and I mean, you know, let's, we can go towards the right side because it's easy for us to come up with the left wing because that's usually what we're arguing against. Mm -hmm. But like, you know, in terms of on the right wing, when you're talking about pro-life, there was a long argument that's still ongoing between 2A and FUDs. That's what they're called, right? So there's the 2A guys and they're the 
I should be able to own whatever gun I want. If it's a small arm, I can own it. Then you have the what they would call term as a FUD, which is they're much more like, look, guns are kind of for like self-defense. So if it's not necessary for self-defense, why do you need it? Do those two names come up from something? Is it stand for something? Uh, FUD is from Elmer FUD. Oh, okay. It's a, it's an insult towards them by the more pro 2A guys. 2A? Um, is that a yeah, gun reference? Uh, Second Amendment. Oh, yeah. sec- oh so of they, course. They, okay. Yeah, they, they, I was just like, yeah. this sounds really simple, but I want to make sure we explain it. So they call it the 2A movement because it's easily hashtagable with the letter 2. Of course a. it is. Um, of course. Everything today has to be hashtagable. Has to be hashtag. Including weddings. Um, <laughs> Don't go there. <laughs> know. You know, again, in the same movement in terms of just they're both okay with private mm-hmm. gun ownership. What they're okay with is different. Right. So I want to go back to the other examples that we had. So we had murder, we had rape, and we had prison reform. So the case becomes, you know, I brought up feminism because I wanted to bring up one where it's easy to come up with a line where you're like, this is what I'm willing to go up to. And then once you have that and it's not encroached upon, you say that is okay. With the purpose of murders, when we start talking about the statistics, I think it's a lot harder to come up with that line. But when we start looking at what your neighborhood looks like, it's super easy to come up with that super muddy line where you say it looks okay. So I'm comfortable with it. Right. So what do you do with that? And that's why I said those limiting principles, because what you can say is, I do not want this place to be a police town in order for safety. Mm -hmm. You decide your principles at the beginning, right? I'm for personal freedom. I'm for freedom of association, freedom of speech. I'm for freedom of religion. And once you decide that, you can begin to create where you'll end up rather than starting with where you want to end up, which Mm. is much more money, and then trying to work backwards from there because there's too many ways you can go. So if you say, I want a good neighborhood, great. Well, there's tons of good neighborhoods and they all do different things. But once you say, I want well-kept lawns and I want up-kept buildings, great. All right. So you want to get a committee, right? I like city life. I like hustle and bustle. There are people I know who do, and I still don't understand why. But for them, they're going to enjoy a a certainly different look, but they're able to start with sort of what they value and what they want in a place, and then they can go from there. Look, we don't want any police here. We want more community watch. Well, why is that? We want our citizens invested in the safety of this place when they live here. Now, there's obviously trade-offs of community watches. That was the whole Trayvon Martin case. But that community made that choice based on their belief that they had and the way that they had started their place and the way they had made decisions as mayors and and city councils. And then they got there. So that key is when you define those principles, the limits become more and more apparent. That's sort of a first principles argument. There's other ways of viewing it, of course. But my argument for that first principles argument is you yourself start with those principles and then your lines will start to form and you can start drawing your lines around it. Hmm. And again, This is also where you can have productive conversations because when it is a muddied conversation and you're not sure, you're now able to voice, look, I'm not totally sure about this. I only don't want this, but there's like these other things that I could do. Maybe I should do that. What do you think? And now we can talk, even though we might have different values or we might have a slightly different approach to things. We also now can go back and forth between the two approaches because it's not oh, well, you stand for police and that means you like killing black people or, oh, you hate police. That means you're 
also for killing black people, which is how it works nowadays, I guess. But you see how it just becomes a slogan at the end because mm-hmm. one side says the police are mostly good. The other side says the police are mostly bad. And then you're obviously against whatever I'm against. So you're for the opposite of it. No, no, no. You have to have, what am I actually standing for? What do I actually want? And then if you kind of agree on the same thing, but you have that approach, then it's a lot easier for you guys to start drawing the lines on what you are okay with and what you're not okay with. So essentially, would you say it comes down to agreeing that there are a few basic central tenets that you are both for that you come to the table with and then say, I think we could do it. We could accomplish these things this way. What do you think? Right. I think the best example for that is the current U.S. healthcare system. Whichever way you you fall, that doesn't matter. What I'm saying is both sides agree it's broken Mm -hmm. and they both want to fix it. But they're accusing the other side, again, that they want to murder people. Right. So there's the slogan part. But rather is it, what if you were sitting down and you said, look, we're going to do it this way. And then what happens when it doesn't work? What happens when it doesn't achieve the, the outcome you're looking for? Well, we ran into that. It happened. You know, we passed Obamacare and people thought that it was going to save everyone. And then they had a website release that was extremely botched. And then they started having issues where the people at the very bottom were getting all of the care, but then they were paying almost nothing or actually nothing. And then the people at the middle level to the top were paying way more than they were expecting and weren't saving money. And then you ran into the issue where the entirety of what's left of middle America was taking the entire bill. Right. The deductibles rose, but people with coverage rose as well. So is your goal to have people Mm -hmm. with coverage or is your goal to have low deductibles? Which one? But then the response has been, well, let's have insurance sell across state lines because they'll want to compete with each other. Right. But some people have said, well, if people are competing with each other, they're afraid also of a country mega group, basically like an Amazon of healthcare that then get price gouges. So you can't do that if you have the ability to sort of break it apart that way. So I mean, that's a tough thing too, because theoretically, if they're offering a prime product, not just because if Amazon were to release healthcare, they'd totally call it prime healthcare, but (laughs) because if they're offering a great product at a great price that works, then why wouldn't they do it? You know, I know there are other forms of healthcare where they're more based on people trying to use it as infrequently as possible. And so they reduce their level of deductibles or they reduce the amount of care that they have to provide because everybody accepts a certain level of lower care. And it's difficult because some people that might seem really terrible. And for other people, it seems like one really big, happy family. Right. And I think in some other episodes, we'll go more into just generally the healthcare arguments and stuff like that. So that you can go on for hours with that sort of thing. But I think the main point after all of these things putting together, where do you draw your lines? What are your principles? Mm-hmm. And what are you okay with? Again, how much murder, how much crime are you okay with? Mm-hmm. Once you start making those decisions, you can start having conversations with other people because you're no longer seeing them as emotional attacks back and forth, but as two people who have similar goals attempting to solve an issue. And that's where I think at a high level view, where we want to go with the show, what we want to do, and how we want to approach a lot of these different topics, even though we may not agree with people on different sides, we can still fairly investigate their ideas and our ideas can be tested so that they become better rather than simply being dogmatic. Mm -hmm. So the first way I would talk about, like if I was looking to have these types of conversations, the first thing that I would do is to look towards people that I trust that would be open to having a conversation. 
where there are people that you know that they're still going to love you at the end of it. If you make a long step, you can backtrack. And the place where I would not go to do that would be, I don't know, Yahoo comments on Facebook (laughs) or like go the complete opposite route, like choose some super conservative news source or something like that. Or the opposite side again, like CNN, you know, that's not where I'm going to go to try to have a realistic conversation. Because the first thing about it is if you're not having it in some form of in-person or voice chat, it's really hard to find that lifeline with someone else. When you said something at the very beginning, you had those four different viewpoints on pro-life and at least two or three of them caused my heart to race. If this was over a written chat, I might have to hold myself back from feeling upset and inflamed by what you wrote versus what people say like, oh, be an adult and scroll on. You know, there are times in person where you kind of have to be an adult and scroll on because you're talking with somebody that's already so impassioned about their point that they're unwilling to discuss it with you on a rational, um, I'm going to reiterate where you said talking about emotional topics in a non-emotional way. So this is now about what can we do in order to have these conversations? You put forward the idea that we need to come through with a series of limits, what we're okay with, come to it with a base fact. I'm putting forward that we need to come to it with somebody who is actually willing to have that conversation. What else can we do? Right. And so that's why when you remember your side, you're going to think you're right. We sit here, we think we're right. And then whoever's criticizing us is going to sit there and think they're right. Mm -hmm. Because nobody actually thinks that they're wrong. And so they go with it. If you can remember that the other person is not attempting to simply, what does Gandalf say? You know, I'm not trying to rob you. I'm trying to help you. Mm Mm-hmm. If you can remember that, even though you may have a disagreement with the person, even though those things, I think what can happen is we can change and then those apparatuses that feed those emotions, that feed off that, will Mm -hmm. change with it. Because a lot of people want CNN, Fox News, Breitbart to agree, to be the ones who lead the change. Mm. The problem is when they put those pieces out, no one listens to them. (laughs) They can't put themselves out of business. Tucker Carlson has the number one show. And he calls himself a reactionary guy. And what are the shows gaining traction? The opinion shows. Not the mid-morning news shows. Those guys aren't having the highest ratings. It's the opinion shows at night. So if we can start having those things, because again, you can have your principles. And then when you know you don't have a real principle there, you can know that, well, I'm not actually totally sure. So let's hear this guy out. Right. But a lot of times people are like, well, I don't know too much about that, but... I still don't like you because you have a D or an R. So right. screw off. Right. Yeah. What you just brought up it literally happened to me yesterday. I have a, a realtor friend and she posted something about how like, oh, I hate said such and such politician. You know, the one I'm sure that she was probably flaming about. But what she said specifically was, I don't like that they're removing protections for people who are looking for housing in different areas this 2015 law, something, something, something. And I immediately shrugged because I had no idea what she was talking about. I haven't heard about this 2015 law. And so I first clicked the link on Politico that she had posted. And what I found was there was nothing on this entire webpage saying, what is it? And the only thing that was there was saying it was never fully implemented. And we're not sure what it would have accomplished, but it would have required 92 page report to be created by every single city in the United States. And so I went back and I said to her, Hey, I'm not really sure exactly what this is. And essentially asked her to educate me. 
you know, like, I don't understand. Can you tell me a bit more about what this is and what this would keep from happening? Because from my perspective, I would say the the limited perspective that I have in my own worldview would say, well, anyone can do the game of housing if you have the money to play. It's very pay to play. If you have the money for a down payment, who's not going to lend to you? And I think there's a lot of privilege in this entire country because most banks will lend to you if you have some level of credit. The question is, what will the percentage be? Because they're interested in making money. But back to the original example, you know, she actually responded to me and said, Hey, here's what would happen. And it was what I was saying about how like minorities would have a harder time being lended to. That was the idea. Right. But in my perspective, maybe the best thing to do isn't creating a 92 page report city by city. However, you know, maybe there needs to be something in place. And so getting rid of something that's really big and expensive, maybe that's the right thing to do, but you need to be replacing it with something that might be better. But just asking the question of, would you educate me? She didn't respond and go, wow, I hate you. I don't care what you have to say. And that's just so awful when I asked a qualifying question to start it off. Right. And I think that's the thing. If we can start that at the bottom and we can have sort of a thing that discusses even the Anything that goes together, we can move from there and it can hopefully start making people understand that somebody else's idea might be trying to achieve that same goal. Mm-hmm. And if that can be the case, then feel that the show's a success. I think also that the country would be a success because I don't, mm-hmm. I don't think this is a sustainable way of continuing. Right. It's not sustainable. And where I think this really all comes down to is recognizing what you said is we all want to be on the same side as the angels. So from that perspective, if we believe that that other person who disagrees with us is of the same mindset that we all want to succeed and we all want to succeed the quote right way, then there isn't a reason for us not to try to work things out and uh, and resolve our differences. So we hope that you all enjoyed this conversation that Matthew and I had. So once again, what we're asking for you to do is find someone that you trust and discuss with them, you know, something difficult that's going on today and come to them with, you know, central tenets that you can both believe in to start with and recognize that you might not know something that somebody else knows that they can educate you about and you can educate them if you have something to offer and you can work towards coming towards an agreement on what you both understand to be true and where you think something should grow into in the future. We are so excited to put this show together and we hope that you'll be a part of its success. So please subscribe, share, and like this podcast. And please join the show next time. Thanks for listening. And if you have a comment, question, or rant, we'd love to hear it. Email us at bluestateconversations at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook and find our articles on Medium. If you like this podcast, share it with a friend. No matter what state you're in, blue, red, or purple, there is always room at the table to discuss your views in a way that lets us all grow.